This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. A couple of weeks ago, I was invited to go over to the University of Finley to speak at Revive, their student worship service. Uh, about once a year, they invite me to do that. I really look forward to those evenings. Uh, we've got some good friends in the leadership there, students that we've known for a number of years. I uh, always enjoy worshiping with them, and we always enjoy having students from the university worship here with us as well. It's a, it's a, it's a joy for us. Now, they, they're going through a series called Prophet, Priest, and King, talking about the roles of Jesus. They invited me to speak about Jesus as the great high priest uh, from the book of Hebrews. And uh, the one, here, here's the parameters they gave me. I want you to talk about the history of the Old Testament priesthood, talk about how Jesus fulfilled that role, and then also the application of how, how we are a reflection of that in, in the world around us. And you've got 20 minutes. And I said, okay, I will make it work. And so I took a be- deep breath and just started talking. I felt like the uh, Micro Machines guy. You see those old commercials in the 80s of the, the Micro Machines? I loved Micro Machines. The commercials were great, though. This guy would just talk and just go for it. That's what I felt like. And I just... Stopped in the middle, took another deep breath, finished up. It was fun for me. I hope everybody, you know, was able to follow along and, and get some meaning out of that message. But what I, what I realized as I was preparing and speaking is how similar that message was to our message today. How much that history helped me think about what, what we're going to talk about today in the the purpose of the cross. Now, our series, The Wonderful Cross, is leading us up toward Easter next week. And we are talking all about the events in that last week of the life of Jesus that were leading him toward the cross. Today, we're talking about the the purpose that we see fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus. And we recognize the significance of that, that image of the high priest who for the people of Israel in the Old Testament was the connecting point to God, present at the tabernacle and then at the temple when it was constructed for the people to come, knowing they could come into the presence of God and have the the significant barrier that kept them from the presence of God removed through sacrifice. And the high priest, after uh, preparing himself, was there to lead worship, to teach about the law, and very specifically to offer sacrifices for the people so that the blood of the animals that was shed would make payment for their sins, make them worthy to enter into the presence of God, enable them to worship him freely. And this is the, the significance of, of the role of high priest for the, for the people of Israel to think about that moment where that barrier was removed, where they were set free from that guilt and enabled to enter into the presence of God. The high priest in the Old Testament would first offer sacrifices for himself to cleanse himself to be in the presence of God and then offer sacrifices for the people to allow them to enter into that presence as well. Those sacrifices were made on the altar in the temple. And so we we have that framework in mind as we talk about the purpose of the cross, the place where sacrifice was made. Jesus, instead of making sacrifices on the altar, made his sacrifice on the cross. And we read in Hebrews uh, the deep meaning behind all of that. That Jesus is our high priest forever, at the right hand of God, always present to make petitions, intercede on our behalf. 
And in chapter 7, verse 26, we read these words. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. This is the purpose of the cross, that Jesus surrendered his innocent life to take upon himself the guilt of all people for all time. And as we, as we move through our sermon today, I want to in, ask you to think with me about this exchange that takes place again and again through the events of the story, this exchange of guilt and innocence. We are going to read all about guilt, about, about guilt that is exposed, guilt that is realized, accepted, denied, blamed on others, There's guilt to spare in the events of the story, but there is only a singular point of innocence found in the person of Jesus. And because of his willingness to lay down his life, he made that innocence available to us. And and in providing that innocence, took our guilt upon himself. And this exchange takes place. And that's what I want us to think about as we're moving through the events of the story, how that guilt and innocence our exchange for one another. Jesus provides for us an innocence that we didn't earn while freeing us from the guilt that we did earn. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 1. If you have a Bible you want to open with me, please do so. We'll read along together. The words will be on the screen. If you want to use the Version app, like we said earlier in the service, just open that app up. Search under events for Parkview Finley, and you'll see scripture and sermon notes there for our sermon this morning. Verse 1, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I've sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They they replied. That's your responsibility. Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That's why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel. They used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now, first we want to examine Judas and the place where he was when he saw Jesus condemned. When he witnessed this, Jesus bound, being handed over to the Romans. Judas was seized with remorse, overwhelmed with this experience. And it brought him to an understanding of the consequences of his actions. Judas was confronted by his guilt. Maybe for for the first time, fully recognizing the impact that his decisions had made in the lives of people around him, specifically in, on Jesus. He had been so focused on his own temptation, so keyed in to, to his greed, to, to, to money. You think about the events leading up to the story that we've talked about already in the series. When, when Jesus was anointed with that perfume, when he, was, when he was having dinner and a woman walked up behind him, broke open this jar of perfume, poured it over his head. Well, the disciples were, were upset at the waste. Why, why would you waste that perfume? We could have we sold that and given the money to the poor. Notice how how motivated he was to have the religious leaders pay him off, driven by that desire. He went went and sought them out 
asking, how much will you give me if I hand Jesus over to you? He couldn't see. He chose not to see the reality of what was taking place. He ignored the, the pain that he would be causing to Jesus as he would, would be led away to, to be crucified. He, he ignored the impact of, of what would happen to his relationship with the other disciples when, when they found out that he's the one that betrayed Jesus. He refused to, to, to look around to see the circumstances happening in the world around him. He had, it was like he had blinders on. You know what blinders are? My dad grew up on a farm. My, my grandfather, he, my dad would tell me stories about how they would train horses and move them through the process of, of getting them accustomed to a, a rider, teaching them to obey the, the, the instructions and commands, pull on the reins, get the horse to do what they wanted. And in the process, some of the horses required blinders when they were doing their work. If they were in the field plowing, they would put on a bridle harness that had leather flaps on the sides where the horse's eyes were so that when the horse was plowing, it could only see straight ahead, focused on the task, moving forward in a straight line, keeping the horse from getting distracted from movement that would happen in its peripheral vision, things moving around, light flashing, things off in the distance, the horse sometimes would have a tendency to, to turn toward those interesting things. Kind of like a junior high kid. What, what's that? I'm going to go see what's going on over here. And so to keep them from doing that, they'd put blinders on the horse to get them keyed in, focused on what was in front. Now Judas is focused entirely on this temptation, this greed, and would not turn to see what was happening in the lives of the people around him. And it wasn't until he saw Jesus bound and handed over to the Romans, that he finally opened his eyes and realized the impact of what he was doing. Now, we can't say that he was completely unaware. If you think about the events that have been happening, when he was having the Last Supper with Jesus, they were reclining around the table, and Jesus said, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas said, certainly you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus said, well, you just said so. Later, when, when Judas brought all the men with him to arrest Jesus, and Jesus looked in his eyes and said, do what you came for, friend. That, I mean, there's, there are all these, these moments when Judas could have acknowledged the path he was on, could have deviated from that path, could have, could have made better choices, and yet he didn't. He was so focused on his temptation. And finally, when he saw Jesus condemned, he was willing to make a change. This is often the way we're confronted with our own sin, with our own guilt, with, with the, the decisions that we're making. We have a tendency to get focused on our desire, focused on that thing that's placed in front of us. And we, we forget to look around, see what's happening in the world around us. So we forget to look at the, the people who are closest to us that would be hurt if we continue to pursue this thing. We forget to look around and see the damage that would be caused, the consequences that would play out in our lives. If we would continue chasing after our desires, we, we get keyed in like we have blinders on. And we don't often consider, often consider the pain and the difficulty, the reality of what those decisions would have brought about. This, this failure of Judas, this recognition of his guilt, teaches us about the importance of opening our eyes. Uh, of looking around us and, and realizing that the consequences that will play out if we continue to pursue temptation, if we allow it to, to grow and develop and give birth to sin, if we, if we continue on that path, what is it that's going to happen? 
We often don't stop and look around until after we realize those consequences. Think about how significant it would be if we could very, go back to the, the beginning, go back to that first moment of temptation and evaluate clearly what, what might happen if we were to start down that path, how we could avoid those consequences, how we could avoid the burden of guilt, how we could honor God with our faithfulness if we were to recognize the warning signs present and change course. A few years ago, one of, one of our elders, very wise uh, man, said these words about that idea of temptation towards sin. What, what we need to do is ask ourselves this question. Whenever we, we're feeling tempted, whenever we recognize a desire that would pull us away from the Lord, we need to ask ourselves this question. What is the worst case scenario? What's the worst possible thing that could happen if I pursue this temptation? If I choose to indulge in this sin? What are, what are the worst case consequences that would come about in our life? What would happen if my family were present when I did this? What would happen if I... If the, the church knew about my decision to, to do this thing, what would happen at work if my boss, if my coworkers were aware of what I was doing? What's the worst possible thing that could happen in those relationships, in those situations? Consider that worst case scenario before, before you make your decision. And with that information in mind, you will have a much better opportunity to make good decisions, to avoid the consequences that would come, to avoid that burden of guilt that would be present if you pursue this line of temptation. For Judas, it, it took seeing Jesus being let off, handed over to the Romans to recognize that he should have done something different. But it wasn't just Judas who was confronted with the reality of his decisions. He went immediately to the religious leaders to return the money they had given him. Here, the, I have betrayed innocent blood. Here's your money back. I don't, I don't want it. This is, this is, this, I should have known. I betrayed innocent blood. He wanted to clear his conscience. And, and also, I think there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of a warning in these words of Judas. I betrayed innocent blood. Jesus is innocent. And he made that, that point as he returned the money to the religious leaders. And what did they say? What's that to us? What do we care if you think Jesus is innocent? What do we care if you feel bad about betraying him? What do we care if you've had a change of heart? What is that to us? All they wanted was to have Jesus out of their way. Their plan to have Jesus killed was not contingent on Judas's betrayal. It was just the most convenient way to take Jesus into custody away from the crowds. They were aware of the difficulty of the situation they were in. Notice how they called this money blood money. We can't put this back in the treasury. It's blood money. They're the ones who paid it to Judas. They have a hand in what's taking place. But they don't, they don't care about Judas's change of heart. They don't care that he's saying that Jesus is innocent. And it's a difficult situation, one that is overwhelming to Judas who, in the burden of his guilt, took his own life, weighed down, overcome, feeling helpless and hopeless because of the guilt that was present in his life. When we're confronted with the reality of the consequences of our sin, we have a decision to make about how we will respond to our guilt. 
Guilt isn't something that just happens when we sin in that moment. That, that's when we, we are guilty. Guilt is a burden that remains in our lives after we have sinned. A burden that we struggle to deal with sometimes. It, it's heavy. It's painful. It's, it's debilitating. It, it can become overwhelming bring us to a place of, of helplessness, bring us to a place where we lose hope because what we see is this huge burden of guilt. And we have decisions to make about how we will handle that guilt. And it's important for us in relationship to Jesus to allow that, that response of guilt to be a catalyst for change in our faith, not to become something that, that damages our lives from this point forward, but something that, that becomes a turning point for us, that, that through the forgiveness and the blood of Christ, we can surrender to the Lord and allow him to work in us, to, to reconcile us to himself, to restore that relationship, to, to rebuild trust, and to help us become the kind of person that he desires for us to become, to leave that guilt behind so that we can learn more about faithfulness. It's an important decision for us to make, but it's a difficult decision for us to make because that burden of guilt is so heavy, because it weighs us down, because it makes it hard for us to accept responsibility, to, to own the wrong that we've done so that we can confess it, repent of it, and move beyond it and allow the Lord to work in us. Judas is a, is a very difficult example for us to learn from. But, but an important example for us to learn from, especially when we compare his experience to Peter's experience, who, rather than betray Christ, denied him three times. And when, after he said for the third time, oh, I don't know the man, the rooster crowed, he went outside and wept bitterly. He knew that he had done wrong. He felt that guilt. But he had an opportunity to move beyond that guilt. After the resurrection, Jesus went back to the disciples engaged them, helped them bring in this huge catch of fish. And then on the shore, he began a conversation with Peter. And he looked Peter in the eye and he asked him a very difficult question. Knowing that Peter had denied, he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yeah, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Three times Jesus asked Peter to verbally proclaim his relationship with Jesus. The same number of times that Peter verbally denied his relationship with Jesus. Peter, Jesus was giving Peter the opportunity to resolve the wrong. To make amends for the things that he said by affirming his love for Jesus, his relationship with Jesus. And then he charged Peter, feed my sheep. He helped Peter move beyond that guilt. He restored Peter, reconciled Peter to himself, and pointed Peter to his plan for Peter's life. And it's important for us to realize that when we entrust that guilt to Jesus, when we surrender it to him, when we let go of it, he has more in store for us. And he helps lift our eyes from that helpless, hopeless burden to see that there's more waiting in the future. And the story for Jesus continues in verse 11. After being led away, in verse 11, he is now standing before the governor. And the governor asked him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? And Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. And the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which one of these two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who's called the Messiah, Pilate asked. And they answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. And they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Now, the events are playing out here. The, in the eyes of the religious leaders, Jesus has committed the sin of blasphemy. According to their law, his life is forfeit. He deserves to die. Why? Because he claimed to be the Son of God. Because he claimed the authority to forgive sin. They said, no, no, no. That is, that is God's right alone. How dare you claim the right to forgive sin? That's blasphemy. He deserved to die in their eyes. They didn't care how it happened. They just wanted it to happen. Now, there are three complications to this scenario. Complication one, Jesus is innocent. He has never once uttered a single phrase of blasphemy, not even a syllable. Everything he said about himself is true. They refuse to believe that it's true, but it's true. He is the Son of God. He does have the power, the authority to forgive sin. There's no blasphemy at all. The second complication of the situation, Jesus is going to die. He came to earth to lay down his life, to redeem sinners, every one of us who would accept him. Nothing will deter him from that purpose. Nothing will keep him from sacrificing himself for us. And so when the accusations are made against him, what did he say to defend himself? Not a word. Pilate can't believe that he's not defending himself. Every other man in this position who is facing execution is desperately trying to convince everyone that they're innocent. Even if they're defending themselves with no other representation. Innocent, you have to believe me. Jesus stood there. He heard their accusations and made no reply. Pilate looked him in the eye and said, are you the king of the Jews? He said, well, you said so. And he let the claims stand. He was going to lay down his life no matter what happened. Third complication. The religious leaders have made a decision to have Jesus executed. But they don't have the authority to have Jesus executed. They are living under Roman rule. And the Romans have allowed them to continue to hold court in the Sanhedrin. Well, the leaders are all gathered together. They can bring people who have done moral wrongs, according to the, the, the Jewish community, before them 
to cast verdict, to decide whether they're guilty or innocent, to give them some punishments, but they're not allowed to put anyone to death at this time. So they're dependent on the Romans to do what they can't do. And they surrender Jesus to the governor, and they provide to the governor these claims about what Jesus is doing. He's leading a revolt. He's leading an insurrection. He's claiming to be the king of the Jews who are living within your kingdom. That makes him a threat to Caesar. And all the while, Pilate, who questioned Jesus, can find no fault in him. These are complications to the plan that the religious leaders have. And yet, Jesus sacrificed himself, though he was innocent. Jesus put himself in that place to die knowing the greater purpose that he came to fulfill. And we see this struggle playing out of his innocence, of those who were, were claiming his guilt, and, and the exchange that's taking place. Now, Pilate can't, can't find any guilt in Jesus, nothing to justify his death. Even Pilate's wife urged him to separate himself from the trial of Jesus. And so his solution was to, to use this tradition to let the crowd set Jesus free. And so he put Jesus up with Barabbas, this well-known murderer who is leading, actually leading an insurrection, the very thing that the Jews are claiming that Jesus did. But the religious leaders are in the crowd, working amongst them, convincing them to call for the release of Barabbas, to call for the death of Jesus. And so Jesus took Barabbas' place. Jesus was sentenced with the execution that he deserved, and he was set free. And even Pilate has been wrapped up in this exchange of guilt and innocence. He wants to claim he's innocent in the condemnation of Jesus. He washes his hands of responsibility, abdicating, allowing the crowd the right to make the decision that he should have made. The story continues in verse 27. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, took the staff, and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. In all of these things... Jesus 
continue to submit himself to the will of God. He suffered. He died. He endured humiliation to become the sacrifice that we need. Jesus took our guilt upon himself so that we could be set free. He is the great high priest forever, always present to intercede on our behalf, both the one to offer the sacrifice that would cleanse us and make us worthy to be in the presence of God and the sacrifice itself, the perfect lamb of God that takes away our sin. He gave up his life to provide to us the grace necessary to make us innocent. And in offering us that innocence, took upon himself our guilt and, and made that exchange. So that when God would look at us, he would no longer see the wrong that we had done. He would see the innocence of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He stepped in to receive upon himself the punishment that we earned with our sin. He traded his verdict with our verdict and applied his innocence to our lives. And we receive the reward that only he could provide life. Not just sparing our lives when they were forfeit, but offering to us life eternal, life abundant. A life that only he can bring by the power of his blood. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for the willingness of Jesus to lay his life down, to offer himself to redeem us from sin. God, we are so grateful to you for the work that you have done for us. We're so grateful for Jesus, for all that he endured to redeem us from sin. God, right now we ask that you would work in our hearts to remind us of our need we ask that you would work in our hearts to, to continually remind us, to keep us faithful to your will and to your way, that we would, we would think first of the, the people around us. We would think first of, of how we break your heart. And that, that those, those reminders of consequences of sin would keep us on the path you've set before us, God. We pray that you would work in our lives when we're overwhelmed with guilt, that you would help to redeem us and to restore us and to point us down a better path. God, we... We lay all these things at your feet, and we're so grateful for the way that you deliver us again and again. We thank you in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.